Welcome to the Chip Warriors podcast, celebrating America's semiconductor pioneers. Their stories, their voices. The technology they invented in the second half of the 20th century has given the United States a secret weapon in the Cold War of the 21st century. In episode one, The Secret Weapon, you'll hear from industry legends like William Shockley, Jay Last, Morris Chung, Jack Kilby, and Gordon Moore. The United States owned the semiconductor industry 30 years ago, and, and it, it's added on countries now that Japan came in first. Europe was always there, but never a really big, but a very steady contributor. Then you saw uh, Korea and uh, Taiwan become important, and now there's a major threat from China. That assessment came from a 2004 interview with Ed Siegel, who the following year was elected chairman of the trade group SEMI. Fifteen years on, the technology threat from China had become the catalyst for what many were calling a new Cold War. The United States wants an open and constructive relationship with China, but achieving that relationship requires us to vigorously defend our national interests. The Chinese government has continually violated its promises to us and so many other nations. We need to get tough with China. And the most effective way is to build a united front of friends and partners to challenge China's abusive behavior. America won the first Cold War by outspending the Soviet Union in nuclear weapons. The Cold War with China will be fought with technology, but this time the U.S. is being outspent. However, America has a secret weapon. It was recently deployed to curb the global expansion of Huawei Technologies, China's 5G champion. The origins of this weapon date back to an invention at Bell Labs in 1947 under a team led by William Shockley. My first uh, notebook entry on what might have been a working transistor was, as I recall, late 1939. The war intervened, and during that time I went out of physics and uh, worked on uh, problems of military operations. After that, I came back. There was reorganization in Bell Laboratories, and I picked the objective of trying to uh, see if we could make something which would do the same sort of job as a vacuum tube, but to try to find out some way to do this uh, with solid materials. The transistor ushered in decades of innovation that cemented America's role as world superpower. The tiny device enabled achievements like the moon landing and commercialization of the Internet. In the U.S., engineers were often the butt of college dorm jokes and stereotypes in Hollywood films like The Nutty Professor. They were squares, nerds, dorks, or geeks. But nobody prevented them from pursuing their studies or inventing. That wasn't the case in Mao Zedong's communist China. The first widespread attack on Chinese intellectuals came in 1957. It targeted those who criticized Mao's policies, even though he asked for such feedback. At the same time, the seeds of what would become Silicon Valley were being planted. William Shockley left Bell Labs to establish a new transistor company in California. But his management style didn't sit well with those under him. Shockley was a micromanager and kept us isolated from each other. He had secret projects with some of us that uh, the others didn't know about. In September 1957, eight disenchanted Shockley engineers resigned. 
Jay Last was one of them. Most of us made the decision we were going to leave. We worked out an arrangement that we were, which led to us leaving and starting Fairchild. We started about the 1st of October, and it, we had to get power in the building, and uh, we had to make all of the equipment we needed, all the furnaces. About the only thing we really we could buy were, were microscopes. Everything else we had to make ourselves. I was just amazed to, to realize that 10 months after we went into this empty building, uh, we had a commercial product. Three days after Fairchild was founded, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. It marked the start of the space race. But the biggest prize was a manned moon landing. The immense challenges were described in colorful terms by President John F. Kennedy in 1962. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this and do it right, and do it first before this dictate is out, then we must be bold. Trouble was, transistor technology wasn't going to get the job done. I remember the department head at one time there um, saying that we've really got to solve this problem because right now, based upon everything we know, if we put a computer that we need to put into a, a spaceship in the spaceship, it's going to be the size of the Empire State Building and it's going to take more power than the entire state of New York City. So we've got to find a way to get that down. Jerry Hutchison worked at the Advanced Research Lab at RCA, New Jersey, in 1959. Virtually every company that I can think of at the time was working on integrated circuits because the concept was fairly easy to understand, difficult to implement, but, uh, but easy to understand. Westinghouse was doing research, General Electric, um, and of course uh, TI. Fairchild was a fairly small unknown company out here on the West Coast. Uh, Motorola was very heavily involved. All of the companies were, um, were working um, uh, diligently to try to, um, uh, to understand how do, we, um, how do we pull this off. It was clear that a new technology was needed for the moonshot. In 1949, the same year Mao Zedong proclaimed the People's Republic of China, Morris Chung joined the freshman class at Harvard University. Fifteen years later, he would be running a transistor product group at Texas Instruments. My first big accomplishment was uh, three years after I joined TI. In the production line that uh, I was in charge of, I increased uh, the yield. The yield was practically zero. In the first three months uh, I went there, this was 1958. The industry was still in its infancy, and uh, the equipment that we used were primitive. In those days, uh, those skills of uh, how to achieve good yields uh, in transistors 
those skills were very valuable skills. I knew device physics pretty well by then. And uh, so I, I tried numerous recipes. And temperature, of course, was not the only variable. There were other variables as well, such as uh, the impurity of uh, the dopant, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, one day, three years after I joined TI, the yield was up to 25, 30% from zero. I remember uh, that night, I mean, I, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited. I knew that I had accomplished something big because I knew the impact uh, of, uh, of the high yield. And the profit from that uh, was significant to Texas Insurance. I quickly got promoted to become the general manager of a more important department, which was silicon transistors. In the summer of 1958, Texas Instruments engineer Jack Kilby invented a multi-transistor device. I had really just started with TI and was beginning to look for things to do. I got some wafers that had been diffused for transistors and was able to cut those up and make the first circuits. You just kind of started and did what you needed to in order to move ahead. There wasn't an organized plan, but we could draw very heavily on the transistor technology. In parallel work at Fairchild, Bob Noyce devised a more practical approach to connecting the transistors. I think it was my concept to put everything in one piece of semiconductor. He added the planar process, which was extremely important. We were able to secure a couple of large programs, particularly the Minuteman program, which brought it a lot of attention. The resulting invention credited to both Kilby and Noyce, would become known as the Integrated Circuit, or IC. Inventing a new device was one thing. Producing it cheaply for mass consumption was the bigger challenge. Sam Harrell worked on the problem at Texas Instruments. I got a doctorate degree in chemistry, and I went directly from there in 1963 to Texas Instruments in Dallas, where... Uh, the timing was great because it was at the birth of the commercialization of the integrated circuit. Up until that time, uh, the integrated circuit had primarily been a military market. majority of the dollars were from the military applications and space applications. So what happened was that at Texas Instruments, at least, we began to look for volume commercial applications in I got involved very quickly in how to make these things at high yield to be the pervasive technology it needed to be. You had to be able to make them for a dollar. And so that drove a lot of what we did. We made roadmaps, we made technology transition charts and all kinds of things, trying to figure out how you were going to make these things for a dollar. And the answer is you couldn't do it with the ways that we were doing it then. We had to invent new ways in order to make that happen. Sheldon Winnig founded New York-based Materials Research Corporation in 1957. He would later be known as the father of electronic materials. And what they were looking for was a material that would have high conductivity, that could be applied very easily, be it by uh, deposition, a thin film, or by the wires, 
and, and of course, I have equal contact resistance at the P-junction and the N-junction. We work for several months playing around with various materials in conjunction with TI, and we finally settle on this wonderfully complex, unbelievably rare material known as aluminum, okay? I mean, it was selling for about 55 cents a pound in those days. That's the real breakthrough part of the story. In other words, we had technology waiting for the the right problem. We, We have an answer, we're waiting for the question. And the question was, what material should we use in a semiconductor? And lo and behold, the electronic materials business is born. Jay Last would leave Fairchild in 1961 to start a company dedicated to developing integrated circuits. By the end of uh, 61, it was an established Fairchild product. The only problem we faced is the world didn't couldn't have cared less about the integrated circuits at that time. So the only use for integrated circuits was military applications where small size was the key item. And it took oh, half of five years but before the first inkling came, this, this could potentially be a cheaper way of doing it. Lionel Katner, who worked at TI before joining Fairchild, had the same idea. With several others, he formed a company called Signetics. We knew that it was mostly going to be a military-type customer base. And uh, as far as industrial and consumer products, that was going to be much further down the road. So we'd talk to Autonetics and several of the larger military companies. And, of course, NASA. We became quickly known as the only company that was totally committed to making integrated circuits. At that time, still, most people called them um, microelectronics devices or solid circuits or micrologic circuits. And it seemed to me that when we started right away, the idea of the word integrated was just we use it exclusively. So... To some extent, we promoted integrated circuit uh, name, one of the first ones to do that. In 1965, Gordon Moore predicted the number of transistors on an IC would double every two years. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy, driving technology progress for decades after. The original paper, which Moore's Law got its name, Uh, made a prediction for 10 years that the most complex integrated circuits would go from about 60 components to something like 60,000, a thousand-fold increase in complexity. That was a wild extrapolation of very little data. I was just trying to get across the idea that integrated circuits were going to be the route to cheap electronics, uh, something that was not clear at the time. And uh, amazingly enough, that 10 doublings in complexity that I predicted turned out to be nine doublings, actually. Pretty close. It got the name Moore's Law, which has stuck to everything that changes exponentially ever since. Boston-based Teradyne was one of the first suppliers of test equipment for the semiconductor industry. The company was the brainchild of Nick DeWolf. When I started Teradyne, one of the things I knew, which none of my competitors uh, cottoned to for a decade, was that what matters is productivity, reliability, solidness, don't make big mistakes. Everyone else sort of thought measuring equipment was supposed to be very accurate, run by people in white coats with uh, goggles on, uh, looking for 0.001%. 
We were always the most inaccurate testers ever made, and we took pride in that because our testers kept working and making money for our customers. And I learned that lesson in helping to run a factory uh, that made semiconductors. The competitors, however, responded as the B-School would have you respond to customer demand. They paid very little attention to what was right or wrong. They paid attention to what they were supposed to build. Their machines were filled with twiddly-doodly-poodly-doodly, oh my God, twit, twit, twit. Oh, it must be Monday, so the voltage is low, so we'll jack it up on Tuesdays. Oh, goodness. Blech. But it's what the customers were willing to pay for because they wanted bigness. Do exactly what the customers want. Don't do your own thinking. And that is one of the reasons I retired, is that I really didn't want to lose control of beautiful machines to sort of having to build great big sloppy ones. And it was no option. Uh, according to the sales department. In China, DeWolf's peers had to endure more hardship when Mao launched the Cultural Revolution in 1966. It tore the country apart for the next 10 years. The United States had its fair share of political and social unrest during that decade. Especially in 1968, with protests over the war in Vietnam, race riots, and political assassinations. Yet, American innovation did not slow down. The year ended on a high note when the crew of Apollo 8 orbited the moon on Christmas Eve. Take up Apollo 8 uh, coming to you live from the moon. Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and myself have spent the day before Christmas up here uh, doing experiments, taking pictures, and uh, firing our spacecraft rockets to maneuver around. The goal, championed by President Kennedy, was now closer to reality, thanks in no small part to the contributions of America's semiconductor pioneers. About 1968, uh, the industry really started to move. Many uh, companies were being spun out of Fairchild, and the Valley just started being populated with semiconductor device manufacturers. Mike McNeely had founded Applied Materials the year before in Mountain View, California. Initially, the you know the big guys, the, the there's IBM, Western Electric, uh, Bell Labs, Motorola, Texas Instruments, Fairchild. Uh, they they dominated the landscape at the time, and they all had internal capabilities, and, and none of them uh, were receptive to anything we we came up with. They at the time the the technology of film deposition and the production of integrated circuits was very very proprietary. So we had an extremely difficult time. But fortunately, like I said, all of these new companies were spawned on the West Coast, and they didn't have any internal capability. So they became the proving ground for the technology that we were deploying. 1968 was also when Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore left Fairchild to establish Intel, which introduced the world's first DRAM two years later. Gordon Moore recalls the challenges in the first few months. I believe it was four goals that uh, we had to accomplish before we could really make devices and uh, set up a wager between the people who had to do it and the people who were watching to, to see if it could be done. And these were pretty aggressive. Uh, it required uh, getting these things done by the end of that first year. One of them uh, was to make a stable MOS device which requires getting everything purified and the like. And that was the last one that was accomplished. In fact, the, the last goal was actually achieved, I believe, on the 31st of December. It was a little fudgy to make that happen. Going from essentially an empty 
building to being able to accomplish these things in uh, the span of August, September, October, November, December, just five months, was really a challenge. DRAMs, used for memory storage in computers, would eventually become the highest volume semiconductor product and a fierce battleground between the U.S. and Japan. Prometric's CEO, Richard Elkis Jr., witnessed the battle. You hit moments in time where an industry like the DRAM business is not so profitable. But the fact of the matter is that the technology of manufacturing for semiconductors was advanced more by DRAM manufacturing than almost anything else. Gordon Moore was unhappy about the fact that Intel had lost the DRAM business, a business that they, in fact, had created. KLA co-founder Ken Levy explains why device makers eventually outsourced their process technology. In the early 70s, the two largest semiconductor manufacturers in the United States and, of course, in the world were IBM and Texas Instrument. Both of those organizations had large capital equipment design groups. So they viewed the design, the process as their competitive advantage, no question about it. Uh, when I went to IBM to try to sell them uh, master wafer aligners, they, they had a big group. They had their own group. They said they didn't need any help from the outside. They were ahead of the world and they were going to do it themselves. Over the years, that, that relationship has changed tremendously. The reason it changed is uh, the semiconductor manufacturer as, as his process got more and more complex and cost of capital uh, went up, recognized that they couldn't get the economy of scale of, for designing their own equipment. They started to outsource more and more. And of course, as they started to outsource more and more, the, the uh, capital equipment manufacturers gained more and more expertise. And the semiconductor manufacturer recognizes that what they have to... Um, focus on is the design of their circuits. And that's where, that's where they make their contribution. In China, the madness and tragedy of the Cultural Revolution ended when Mao died. In America, another technology revolution was in the making. Thanks to an invention at Intel, it was called the microprocessor. The first microprocessors after the calculators went to a variety of funny applications. Uh, the one that stands out in my memory was somebody automated a hen house. Now, I don't know what you do when you automate a hen house, but I remember that that was a peculiar application. In fact, I remember board meeting, one of the uh, board members asked, uh, when we were looking at applications of the early microprocessor, when are you going to get a customer that I've heard of? The, the people buying these were startup companies or obscure little operations. They weren't the, the Fortune 500 that they sell to today. While Fortune 500 corporations weren't too excited about the microprocessor at that time, they were salivating over a new market opportunity. One billion people in China. On January the 1st, 1979, a little more than two weeks from now, our two governments will implement full normalization of diplomatic relations. As a nation of gifted people who comprise about one-fourth of the total population of the earth, China plays already an important role in world affairs. Vice Premier Deng 
has accepted my invitation and will visit Washington at the end of January. Deng's visit to meet President Jimmy Carter was a turning point in U.S.-China relations. The Chinese leader was keen to get access to American technology to upgrade his country's backward economy. In 1983, Massachusetts-based Foxborough became the first U.S. company to set up a high-tech manufacturing joint venture in China. The following year, President Ronald Reagan paid a visit. I'm delighted that American businessmen are working side-by-side with their Chinese partners to develop new technologies for China's industries. We both understand that the capabilities and requirements of our two countries complement each other, and we both can be satisfied that the results provide mutual benefits. As you know, last year the United States liberalized controls on the export of high technology to China. Business partnerships between Chinese and American companies are bound to succeed. While Foxborough was allowed to export instrumentation to China, communist countries were banned from using the latest U.S. semiconductor technology due to its critical role in military and space systems. That wasn't a problem for the capital equipment companies being formed in Silicon Valley at the time. Most of their customers were just down the road. We introduced our first product a year after I started, which, I, looking back, was pretty fast. David Lamb worked in the field of plasma etching for Hewlett-Packard and Texas Instruments before founding Lamb Research in 1980. Luckily for me, most of the fabs are in the Silicon Valley at that time. This is back in the early 1980s. They were relatively close, but geographic closeness is only one advantage. The product still has to work and work well. All companies would be concerned about buying from a small company that may or may not be around two years from now. So I do have a lot of discussions with early customers when they bought the first one. In the 1980s, the requirement for support is much more relaxed, but still, it is a very important issue. So what I did was, when I shipped the first system, I would tell the customer, I said, here's my home phone. If you have any problem, you call me directly, you can call me at home. I would come take care of it. Now, in those days, there's no cell phone. You have to give them the home phone in order to provide the access beyond office hours. But that also makes a statement of a commitment to support them. Now, they don't always call me, but they did. So when they do call me, the next morning I get to the office, I round up a team, and I get on the plane. And that was what happened to Intel when they had the, uh, uh, bought our first system uh, in Oregon. And there were some problems. And we stayed there for three days. And I, I, along with two other engineers, and we fixed the problem before we left. And as a result, we got a lot of uh, good feedback from the customer, and they became very loyal to Lamb Research for years. China has become the largest single geographic market for Teradyne, Applied, Lamb, and KLA. In 2020, China's spending on semiconductor capital equipment was double that of North America's. Yet after decades of effort and massive investments, the Chinese still lag far behind in state-of-the-art chipmaking. Getting it right requires specialized expertise honed over the years. Attempts to fast-track the process through intellectual property theft have exacerbated U.S.-China trade tensions. Speaking to the U.N. General Assembly in September 2019, President Donald Trump 
highlighted one economic espionage case brought by the U.S. Justice Department against a Chinese state-backed DRAM company. Micron produces memory chips used in countless electronics. To advance the Chinese government's five-year economic plan, a company owned by the Chinese state allegedly stole Micron's designs, valued at up to $8.7 billion. Soon, the Chinese company obtains patents for nearly an identical product, and Micron was banned from selling its own goods in China. But we are seeking justice. The Micron case was the first time America's secret weapon, its dominance in semiconductor process technology, was used against a state-backed Chinese tech company. Attorney General Jeff Sessions outlined the new hardball approach on November 1st, 2018. Chinese economic espionage against the United States has been increasing, and it has been increasing rapidly. We are here today to say enough is enough. We're not going to take it anymore. In 2015, China committed publicly that it would not target American companies for economic gain. Obviously, that commitment has not been met. The day before, the Commerce Department banned U.S. exports to the Chinese DRAM maker in question, effectively putting it out of business. Six months later, a similar ban was imposed on Huawei. A year after that, Huawei was blocked from buying wafers made by TSMC, the company established by Morris Chung after he left Texas Instruments. Trade groups like SEMI argued that the restrictions would harm America's industry by creating uncertainty and disruption, resulting in lost sales and a perception that the supply of U.S. technology was unreliable. Regardless, the technology developed by America's chip warriors has become an effective weapon in the Cold War against China. Thank you for listening to The Chip Warriors, written and produced by Craig Addison, based on interviews he conducted between 2004 and 2008. These interviews were licensed from SEMI, which is not affiliated with this podcast. Be sure to check out Episode 2, The First Chip War, How the U.S. Prevailed Against Japan in the 1980s. And please support this project by subscribing to the premium episodes.